are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Come, Holy Spirit. Come like the fire and burn. Come like the wind and cleanse. Convict, convert, and consecrate our hearts for our great good and your great glory. Amen. So last week, I was quite struck by Jamie's reading of The Hunchback of the Notre Dame. Yes, by the sublime, that offering of that cold cup of water, or that gourd off Esmeralda's belt, that offering of Esmeralda to Quasimodo while he was locked in the stocks. Let me remind you a little bit of this scene. Quasimodo was nearing the end of his time being locked in these stocks for having tried to kidnap Esmeralda that previous night. And remember that he had been manipulated into doing this by the archdeacon, who had a fancy for her and wanted her for his own. A crowd, a mob, had gathered to mock and jeer him to throw rotten food, broken water jugs, and sponges soaked in the gutter in response to his cries for a drink. And all of a sudden, Esmeralda breaks through the crowd and makes her way up to the stocks. Quasimodo can only imagine that she is coming to take that final blow at what, if any, dignity that he had left. He was so afraid that he wished that the power of his eyes would act as lightning to strike her down as soon as he saw her. As she climbed the ladder, he writhed in vain to get away from her. And what happened next is one of the most beautiful acts of grace and mercy I have ever heard or read. Not only did she offer her assailant this draft of water when the whole world was against him, She actually transported this whole scene into a place of goodness for just a split second. It says in the translation that I found that she pouted prettily, with impatience. This is important because Quasimodo forgot to drink the water that she had offered him at first because he was so overcome with joy, and her response was to pout, prettily, with impatience. This little detail reveals something of her heart. She did not disdain him for turning down her grace and her gracious offer. No, it was true grace, and a truly gracious offer so much so that she found space for beauty and even a touch of humor in front of this jeering crowd on a pillory that had at least one gutter-soaked sponge. Not only was Esmeralda offering a cup of cold water to one of the least of these, but that it was the one who tried to kidnap her makes her almost a Christ-like figure. Forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. Truly a sublime scene. But what really struck me 
was what happened next. And let, let me read this to you again. When he had finished drinking, the hunchback puckered his dark lips, no doubt to kiss the hand that had brought him such welcome relief. But the girl, perhaps remembering the violent assault of the previously night, quickly drew her back her hand in the same sort of terror that a child does when she's afraid of being bitten by a beast. The poor fellow then fixed on her a look full of reproach and unutterable woe. And from our readings from Romans tonight, so I find it a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. If you look, there is in fact not one act of goodness in the whole scene that is not met with evil lying close at hand. Esmeralda moves through the cloud and up the ladder only to be met with wish of her death by Quasimodo. Esmeralda moves through the cloud and up the ladder only to be met with writhing for distance and wish of her death by Quasimodo. His forgetting to drink because of joy was met with a pretty pout, with a touch of impatience instead of an understanding smile. And the offer of thanksgiving by way of a kiss was met by her terror and his heartbreak. And still, the scene was sublime. So sublime, in fact, the mob embraces Esmeralda's gesture of grace. The people themselves were moved by it and began clapping their hands and shouting, hurrah, hurrah, goodness not evil had taken root. But Hugo, Victor Hugo, the author, could not let that fantasy stand for very long. He continues to tell the story by how things really go. It continues, It was precisely at this moment that the recluse perceived from her window, from her den, that the gypsy on the pillory and pronounced at her a bitter imprecation, curse you, gypsy woman, curse you. Esmeralda turned pale and with a faltering step descended from the pillory. She's in one of her moods today, the people said, grumbling, and they did nothing else. Women of her class were then deemed holy and revered accordingly. Both Paul and Victor Hugo, with these two passages, are telling us how things really are, how the world really moves day to day. That is, in fact, what all of the great works of literature do. They tell us how it is, and so often where goodness takes hold, evil lies close at hand. But tonight, Paul comes to it at a bit of a different angle than he usually does. In these 10 verses in Romans 7, they're just a bit different from what we're used to. We're used to hearing Paul writing broad strokes here in fairly technical terms, asking questions and then answering them so that his hearers might be able to see how it all fits together. 
But this section is different. Paul changes the voice he's writing with. He moves from we to I. Verses 13 and 14, just before what we read tonight. Did that which is good then bring death to me? You can hear him teach. By no means. We know that the law is spiritual. We all know this, right? Question and answer. But it moves. Verse 15. I do not understand my own actions. A personal monologue. One that I know well. Maybe you do. One where we tell ourselves and tell God that we know what the right thing to do is and for some blasted reason we just can't seem to follow through on it. And for some reason the power of the flesh always seems to win out over the power of our will. Even though we come to church and love God and feel invigorated, hopefully by the sermon, but at least by the Eucharist, to do better that Sunday, by Wednesday, the world has worn us down and the shine has come off, and we fall back into our old ways. We just can't seem to manage. I just can't seem to manage. That's just how the world moves. But it's not how it ends. And it's not how this passage ends, and it's not how our story ends. The end of this monologue ends with Paul saying, Who will deliver me from this body of death, this life of sin? Thanks be to God from Jesus Christ our Lord. And continuing from there, there's this piece where he says, where he kind of sums it all up. He says, well, my body, it sins, and my mind, it wants to do right. He just sort of says, thanks be to God, but the truth is here anyway. It continues from there. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul, he gets caught up in the spirit in this cry of praise, just like so many of the psalmists do. And that move from question and answer, from that we to I, is an important one. Paul changes from theory to experience. He changes, he moves from teacher to psalmist, and he gives us a psalm. Granted, it's a very Pauline psalm, not void of formulas or run-on ideas, but it is language for us when we have none for our own. It's language for us to use when we're at a loss with our own actions. He helps us tell us how it is. And we do this, just like we do every week in our confession and absolution. Each week, we are laid bare. All of our mistakes, named or unnamed, are known by God time and time again and we are forgiven. We tell God how it's gone, and God responds, each time the same, forgiven. That's how it really is. So it was William Faulkner, 
that said the most important subject in literature is the conflict of the human heart. And it is that conflict in one way or another that holds us all in common. It transcends all barriers of race, class, and religion. When we find stunning examples of it, like in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, or in The Lord of the Rings, or Star Wars, or Romans, they become examples. They become mirrors by which we can see ourselves and the world clearly. But not only mirrors, also companions. Traveling in back pockets, read time and time again, until they're falling apart. All of these works remind us that we're really not that special. <laughs> we're in good company, or in not so good company, but that we're not alone. They help us feel known and they help us feel seen. And, at least at the end of the most important of these books, we hear that despite our best efforts, and despite the best efforts of all the evil that lies close at hand, we are brought home into the loving arms of God again and again and again so that we might find new ways to tell and live into the story of the way that God brings us home. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.